Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. My guest today is Dr. Hovig Artinian. Dr. Artinian is an assistant professor of pediatrics and human development at Michigan State University, practicing at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is a board-certified general pediatrician, pediatric pulmonologist, and a sleep medicine expert. He was born in New York and gives a big shout-out to the Mets, grew up in California, a shout-out to the Dodgers, and earned his bachelor's degree from Whittier College, a shout-out to the Poets, before joining Teach for America as a middle school science teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools, while simultaneously earning his master's degree in education at Johns Hopkins University. He decided he needed an easier job than being a middle school teacher, so he became a doctor. The best part of his job has always been earning a child's trust and getting them to smile. The worst part of his job is when a kid vomits, because that makes him need to vomit also. When not working, his favorite place to be is the window seat of an airplane, staring out in awe at the beautiful world below. You are in for a real treat. Buckle your seatbelts. Hey, Hovig, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How about you, Leah? I'm doing well. You know, it's a snowy day here in Michigan and Southwest Michigan and kind of gray and gloomy. So I look forward to any like little glimmers of sun. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to see sun, but I do love cuddling under the covers in weather like this. So it makes it nice to relax. Yeah, it's as close to hibernation as uh, humans get, I think, is is winter in Michigan. Well, I just wanted to start with your very, I think, funny story about how you got into medicine, because I no one else has had that story. <laughs> sure. So... I'm a career changer. I originally was a public school teacher. And so out of college, I was a little 22-year-old firecracker who was going to save the world, right? And so I had the privilege and opportunity of teaching eighth grade science in Baltimore City public schools. Uh, Say no and- more. <laughs> <laughs> That's when my hair loss started. Um, <laughs> loved my kids, but eighth graders are just uh, an interesting group of people, interesting humans. And so after two years of, of an incredible experience, I, I just decided I needed an easier job. I <laughs> medicine, right? So medicine was that easier job. <laughs> and so I had the opportunity to go to med school and here I am now. Wow. And why did you pick sleep medicine? So sleep medicine is another one of those sort of not accidental, but uh, moments that others helped guide me to, if you will. So um, I I had a pretty good sense that I would do pediatrics because I love working with kids and, you know, adults are stinky and they complain and nobody wants to be an adult doctor, although apparently many people do. So bless their hearts. I'm glad they chose it because I couldn't. And then I was all set on being a general pediatrician. You know, I love the work that we do in helping families really navigate through 
growth and development. But then in the beginning of my third year of residency, I got to do a, a pediatric pulmonary rotation and just, you know, fell in love with the type of families that they took care of and fell in love really with the attending. So I looked around and saw these pediatric pulmonologists and thought, I would love to work with people like this for the rest of my career. So had the opportunity to, to get connected and do my pulmonary fellowship. And then as I was applying for my big boy jobs all around the country, Grand Rapids was one of those spots that I, I knew about because I got to do a rotation here as a med student. And I would love to give a shout out to Jerry Kasenich because she was the program director at the time who sort of took a shot on giving me an interview here and set me up uh, to do a rotation. Uh, but anyway, so Grand Rapids was on my mind. And so I reached out and they said they did have an opening for a pulmonologist. And when I came to interview, my uh, division chief, John Chuen, who I think everyone in this community knows very well, uh, you know, as we're interviewing, he said, you know, it's, it's just one more year. You should consider doing a sleep fellowship. And at the time I was exhausted, right? Four years of med school, three years of residency, three years of fellowship. The last thing I wanted to do was another year of fellowship. Um, so I think my response to him was like, I don't know if I want to like punch you right now or what if <laughs> one more year. <laughs> but he's very good at planting seedlings in a very uh, non-threatening way. And so that little seedling he planted kept growing. He even wrote me an email of like the top 10 reasons you should consider a sleep fellowship. And I, uh, so I, I finally was like, you know what? Sure. Why not? It's just one more year. Let's do it. And I'm so glad I did. It was one of the best decisions uh, that I've made in my medical career. One of the things that I found in doing this podcast over and over and over is the power of mentors in yes. our lives. And most of the people I've interviewed have said, well, I chose this because someone helped me get there. And so I think there's a power in one um, being mentored, as we all have been, and then being mentors to to others behind us. So, um, and that may be resident students, but it could be our colleagues too. Um, Absolutely, there's there's really no way to thank the Marianne Tablizos and the Sally Wards and the Tom Keens, like all these people that really help push us forward. There's no way to thank them. I think other than to do a good job and try to pay it forward and realize that we didn't get to where we were by ourselves. And well, so- and when it, when it comes time for you to win an Academy Award, then you get that speech. <laughs> I would probably be the person that talks too much and the music sort of plays <laughs> and, <into> commercial. <laughs> and it's like they're, they scoot you off with the people in long dresses. Yep. <laughs> so as far as sleep, it seems like a really big important topic and that it has a lot to do with the homeostasis of organisms, including humans, and that it impacts not only like I feel tired, but other things in our bodies. So why don't you talk about the impact that sleep has on, well, everything? <laughs> it really does have an impact on everything, doesn't it? And I I love that more and more people are becoming conscious of the fact that poor sleep or inadequate sleep can really lead to consequences in our ability to grow, to develop, to to even just be a happy human in our interactions, both with ourselves and with others. And so I think as this consciousness about sleep is growing, more and more people are really wanting to make sure that they're getting 
a good amount of good quality sleep. Um, and so folks, you know, for example, in the pediatric world, like lots of families really come to us and ask us to just help them make sure that, for example, their child's ADHD isn't because they have sleep apnea, for example. And so really being able to be a partner for those families, as well as for the pediatricians who are asking us to help them with that aspect of the treatment plan that they're designing for the children in their care. Uh, it's an exciting time to, to really be able to push, if you will, the sleep agenda, um, which is just, you know, I, I think the more people can get good sleep, the better decisions that will be made uh, for themselves and for those around them. So is there a magic number that I should be shooting for? So uh, for adults, the magic number we say is about seven hours, seven to eight hours. Um, But for kids, it actually does change throughout the course of their life. Certainly, we all know that babies are going to be sleeping the most. Uh, And so for babies, we're really shooting for anywhere from 12 to 16 hours. Most babies are not going to struggle with that. Although, even as I say that out loud, I know some moms have rolled their eyes at me right now. Um, The pediatric moms who listen to this podcast also are probably like, there's, I'm sure there's a few where their baby just doesn't sleep. And there is such a thing as some babies who sleep a little less than other babies. Um, And certainly temperament plays a role in that also. But usually it's not a pathologic issue for babies. It's certainly exhausting for the parents, but uh, not a pathologic issue. And then as they get older, that range will decrease with time. And I should mention 12 to 16 hours in babies is not uh, all at once, uh, as we all know. It's going to be chunks of time throughout the course of a 24-hour period that they adds up to that. And then once you get into elementary school, you're looking at a little bit less. So you're looking at anywhere from 10 to 12 hours. And then as you become a teenager, this is where it becomes super important because most of our teenagers are not getting adequate hours of sleep because really they should be aiming for eight to nine hours of sleep. And so I say that and I always pause when a teenager comes to me and has a concern for feeling sleepy throughout the day because feeling sleepy could be due to insomnia if there's issues falling asleep, anxieties around adolescence. It could be due to, you know, much less commonly narcolepsy or some sort of true hypersomnolence disorder. But in teenagers, particularly, it's a lot of the time due to a delayed circadian rhythm resulting in inadequate hours of sleep and some questionable sleep hygiene practices. And so being able to really work with them to, to fix those things as I, as I tell the families, this is totally curable. Certainly, if we do all the things that will cure this, if you're still sleepy, then it is my job to evaluate further and look for um, a hypersomnolence issue. But before we go down the path of something that's not curable, it's treatable, but not curable, let's make sure we fix the things that are curable first. So are there some strategies as far as helping our baby sleep, I mean, you know, there's all these books and, you know, let them cry it out or don't or, you know, feed them all night, don't feed them, you know, train night sleepers, um, train night feeders, which I always think sound like little vampires, you know, the the bedtime refusals in the older kids, um, anxiety, the kids are afraid to go to bed and so they sleep in their parents' beds. And then, you know, the creeping, of course, um, and we can talk about this in a whole nother piece down, you know, a little bit later about social media and phones. And um, the other thing I think about sleep with infants is not only the baby sleep, the parents sleep, because 
that is a huge contributing factor in postpartum anxiety and depression disorders is, is sleep. So, um, so what about that kind of the continuum of sleep intervention and sure. strategies well, with infants? Cause the continuum of interventions will also change a little bit as, as the kiddos get older. I think for infants, the critical part of treating infant sleep is, I think you mentioned it, uh, helping parents sleep because I need to make sure that um, the baby's parents are taking good care of themselves because if they become incapacitated, then of course the most important caretaker in that baby's life is not going to be able to achieve what their purpose is really. (laughs) Uh, And so as we look at an infant sleep, however, the, as you mentioned, there's so many conflicting recommendations So my philosophy and my sort of uh, the way I work with families is that each infant is unique and each treatment plan is going to be unique because that dyad between baby and parents, you can't capture every dyad in a book and books are great because they give us ideas, but I always want parents to walk away from their encounter with me knowing that there's no one right answer. There's no, uh, exact way that you have to do it. And I think the most important thing is showing ourselves grace and patience with ourselves that each baby's going to interact with their environment differently and they're going to respond to interventions differently. And so uh, with infants, I really do try to understand uh, the environment of the home when I'm trying to then work with the family to create a treatment plan. Because there are some families where if you tell them, let's, we're just going to do the cried out method. They uh, listen, most families want to quote unquote, please the doctor, right? So you might be proud of yourself as the physician, because you said, here's what you're going to do. The mom or dad shook their head. Yes. Walked out and you think you've accomplished something, but no. Um, And I learned way back when I was an eighth grade teacher that (laughs) you may think you accomplished something when you taught it because you moved your mouth and sounds came out, but it doesn't mean you actually accomplished (laughs) it. (laughs) So with parents, I think it's really important for us to identify, is this a family that can try cry it out? Is this a family where we can basically just rip that bandaid off and do the extinction method and um, we'll be successful. If, if I get the sense that they're not, I'm also not shy about saying it. So I will always ask mom, dad, or, you know, in same sex couples, mom, mom, dad, dad, which one of you is the weaker link here? Which one of you is your, your heart is not going to allow for you to be able to hear your baby cry and leave it alone for even a minute. And if I can find out which person that is, then I can really tailor the treatment plan to help them be able to implement that uh, treatment plan. Because ultimately I'm not the one who's going to be there at bedtime for each of the families that I get to work with. They have to be there. They have to buy into the plan and they have to feel comfortable with it. And so ultimately I don't ever really recommend books to folks. I don't recommend I'm supposed to be that expert, right? They've come to me. I don't need to assign a book to them. I will in their after visit summary, include a checklist of, just overall healthy sleep habits and ideas. But really it's my job working with the family to tailor that treatment plan. So yes, sometimes we use the extinction method. Sometimes we use the graduated extinction method. And sometimes we create something totally unique to that family's needs and the way they do things so that they can be successful with it. 
I have never used medication for an infant sleep. I don't think it's necessary. I think infants, certainly there are infants of differing abilities and they may have developmental diagnoses that do make it harder for them to sleep. And I should mention, I don't consider melatonin uh, a medication, although again, I've never used melatonin for an infant either. And so it really is a matter of creating that healthy sleep environment through behavioral strategies for an infant. Now, as they get older, yes, the strategies changed a little bit. Um, and so when we're dealing with toddlers, uh, toddlers are, oh, they are my, I was about to say they're my favorite, but also eighth graders, despite them causing my hair loss, I just love eighth graders also. But uh, toddlers are so incredible because they figure out how to control the human adult that is in their environment. They figure out what they need to do. Manipulate's not the right word because they don't have a manipulative heart, but they figure out what they need to do to get what they want. <laughs> and so um, I always love hearing these parents, especially, you know, you get sometimes the big burly parents who you wouldn't mess with if you saw them like in a bar, but this little two-year-old has figured out how to control them um, and get them to do what they want. And so really helping parents reclaim control of the home environment is where I come in. I, I'm basically a cheerleader that encourages them that it is okay to say no. You don't have to raise your voice. You don't have to get upset about it. You, it's, But it's okay to say no, to not give in to every request by your child. And so with toddlers, we're dealing a lot with the curtain calls, right? Like the coming out for water, coming out for bathroom, again, um, coming out for one more kiss, one more hug. And so really helping parents identify that they've been turned into the sleep onset association and then helping them identify ways to make something else be the sleep onset association. Because ultimately what I have to do is help them realize that the overnight awakenings are not pathologic. Overnight awakenings are actually three to seven times a night. Almost all of us do that. But some families will be, uh, some parents will essentially be awoken every time the kid comes up because at bedtime, they have not yet figured out how to go to sleep on their own. And earlier you mentioned, could it be anxiety? Yeah, one of the biggest times we see this change is when you move a child from their crib to their big boy or big girl bed. Um, that transition to that bed for whatever reason sets off certain triggers for the child. Um, and also, you know, now potentially they're seeing uh, certain movies or certain cartoons and their imagination starts running wild. And especially kids who are more verbal earlier because they now have the words to create that imagination, but they don't yet have the emotional maturity to handle what they have created in their mind that's where some of those fears and anxieties around monsters or ghosts or what have you start coming up. I still remember when I was a kid, we lived on the second floor and there was a window in my bedroom and I was always terrified that uh, a witch was going to climb up the window. So I would literally some nights, I remember being frozen, staring at the window, waiting for the tip of the witch's hat to start coming up the window. <laughs> I don't know why that came up. I don't know why I was that kid. Wizard of Oz, maybe? Maybe, right? Like, Wizard of Oz is is harmless. It's a great movie. Terrifying right? movie. 
Well, <laughs> probably for a kid, like there's a great story there, but yeah, that witch was probably coming for me. And so <laughs> <laughs> I just love that image of the tip of the hat. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for it. So I had to have lights on or, you know, I would, my mom would turn it off. I would get up, turn it back on. And it was a battle of wills. Um, that stubbornness in me never dissipated. However, <laughs> now it's for other things. Um, I'm not worried about the witches. Super, it's your superpower you use for good. <laughs> I think that would depend on who you ask. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, in toddlers, our job really does become helping them build the confidence that they're going to be okay, that they're safe, that mom and dad are still there, that you don't need to worry, uh, you can fall back asleep. And the way we do that, of course, is we start with bedtime. And then we build to the overnight awakenings. And as they build that, because I, I have to help parents realize that if you are doing all those things for them, they're not learning how to self-soothe and how to really develop that confidence that they're okay on their own. I don't think that's hurting the kid. You're not hurting the kid by, by being there for them. But since you're here to see me in my office, I assume you're here because you are hurting because you're not getting enough sleep. And so we can help turn this around um, through consistency of changing some of those strategies. Well, and it sounds like I was thinking as you were talking about toddlers and okay to say no, I think that would then translate into middle schoolers. I mean, I often think that teenagers, and no offense, but they're like big toddlers. They just have better language skills. And it's that same you know, I hear so often like, oh, my kid plays video games for eight hours. Well, it's like, yeah, who's paying for the the Wi-Fi here? You know, you, you know, you have some control here. Don't abdicate it. But I often have told parents like, you know, there's not a law about sleep, you know, and, you know, I'm, you're not in trouble. It's just how are you doing? If you, I said, honestly, most of us want to sleep and we want to go back to sleep. So I get why you bring the kiddo to bed. Mm-hmm. Maybe you, it, but if you when and if you're ready to change that now with an infant sleep, co-sleeping, you know, I, I worry about that, of course. And I know that can be controversial too, but, um, you know, most of us don't really want a kicking toddler in our bed. And, you know, so I've talked about, well, you can make a nest, you know, with them next to your bed and then kind of gradually move it out the hall and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just some different strategies. And I hope I'm helpful, I, you know whether or not that's always goes well or not. I don't know. I love that idea because uh, there's two places you can start sleep training. One is the kid's bedroom and the other is the parent's bedroom. And so uh, when we talk about, well, put them in their bed and then for, for the families where we do graduated extinction, you slowly start moving away each day. But the other way that some families can do it is that the child starts in the parent's bedroom and then each day you move that out further and further. And so again, like you said, there's no law here. There's no one right answer. I will say for babies, uh, room sharing, but not bed sharing is uh, what we recommend. Um, And so by all means, especially if you're breastfeeding, please keep that infant in your room but they should still be in their own crib, of course, sleeping alone on their back and certainly not bed sharing. That's the safest place for our babies. When I found where some of my parents, the reason they were sleeping with their baby was they're afraid their baby's going to stop, stop breathing. And so they're afraid they would, you know, it was fear, Mm -hmm. but the very fear that they are fearing is increased by 
the baby being in the bed with them. And, you know, I've often said, I get where you are coming from, but if that baby is smothered and in, you know, you didn't mean to, of course, you'd have to live with that. So let's talk about ways that you can be a little bit better. I know for me with my second, um, I was, I mean, I had a lot of postpartum anxiety. And so I was terrified that she was going to stop breathing. She was in a bassinet next to me, but every time she moved, I was awake. So finally we moved her in a room next to us, which happens to be our bathroom, which is big. And it was the warmest room in the house. So it worked out just fine. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't sleep. It wasn't her. It was me. Yeah. I, uh, do you think there was a trigger that for your second child led you to have those increased anxieties and fears? Um, she was, uh, she got sick. She was in the NICU afterwards. So I think I was worried. My first one, I had, I had terrible sleep because of anxiety and I just didn't recognize it until much later that that's what was going on for me. And, you know, back in the day, my daughter's 34. I, I didn't know. I mean, nobody asked me, are you okay? And I just thought I was a bad mom. So, um, you know, I remember one night I woke up and I, handed my husband the baby and he said, where's the baby? And I had handed him my pillow. I was so disoriented. Wow. I mean, she was fine and sleeping in her bassinet. I was just losing it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that there are those factors. I frequently will tell parents, look, there is no shame in having postpartum struggles. I mean, it's not like you get up in the morning and go, God, I hope I can feel super crappy today and be worried and sad. You know, you don't want that, but it's a real thing. And, you know, sleep is a big part of that. And I think support, I mean, and, you know, we try real hard in pediatrics now to ask our moms, you know, how are you doing? We screen them. We use Edinburgh screens and look for it. And those things are important. Uh, and, And again, with those other kids, you know, the older they get those anxieties, those kids with anxiety, I mean, it's real for them. They're, I mean, those monsters are real. You know, I know. Um, one of my kids too, we use like the, um, dream catcher, you know, let's hang that over the bed. You know, we had all kinds of stuff that we thought would be clever and, you know, that eventually worked, but. Absolutely. No, I, uh, to, to your first point, I think thankfully in my residency, that was a really big point, uh, really trying to support our parents postpartum, uh, and make, helping them feel that it is absolutely acceptable and you are not alone when you need to ask for help because some of those feelings you're feeling may seem scary. And the last thing I want you to do is like you said, feel like it's because you're a bad parent because uh, that's not the case at all. And so it's really a matter of, of helping them almost normalize it that this is okay. This can be part of postpartum. Um, and the, the person that's best positioned for that to help them identify it early and then help them through it is the the general pediatrician. There's nobody else who's going to see that parent as frequently in the postpartum period. And so um, I really did view my role as a general pediatrician as supporting that dyad, uh, the triad, excuse me, I should say, um, uh, all the parents um, who were involved and really also sometimes helping them uh, either include more of the grandparents' suggestions or helping them gracefully ignore some of those suggestions um, so that they don't feel overwhelmed. So right. there is a great Instagram site called postpartum stress that I really like. And it it's a cartoon that they um, do and it'll be 
you know, how are you? And the mom says, fine. And in the big bubble above her head is all the, you know, I feel terrible. I'm afraid I'm going to drop my child down the stairs. I mean, it's all that intrusive stuff that happens for a lot of um, moms. And so I, I love that. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes for listeners. And, you know, I think certainly our colleagues and, you know, nurse practitioners, our PAs, family medicine docs, we're all in that same spot as pediatricians. And, you know, we are that first line. And, and I think it's okay when we ask, you know, and I tell parents, you know, I said, hey, there's no shame in this. I went through it and I wouldn't, I would not want that for you. Mm-hmm. So if you're having trouble and we've had moms that have said, thank you so much for asking me. Yep. Um, so I think that's, that's really key. And that's often the first thing I ask in a well visit is how are they sleeping for you? You know, regardless of the age, let's talk a little bit about sleep treatment. So is it medication or is it something else? So, yeah, this is always a tough question because some families come in with certain expectations uh, of what I'm going to do. And like, could you fix it real quick, please? Correct. Wave your magic wand and be done with this. And I wish I could do that. I always shake my pen and try to make it work, but no sparks come out. And so <laughs> uh, I really do want families to feel supported, but I also don't want to expose a child to medications that they may not need. And so I always, in the first consults, try to get a good sense of their sleep environment, their behaviors, strategies, and cognitive beliefs around sleep. I always, 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 and this is what my mentor in my sleep fellowship taught me, Dr. Rosen, one of our vital signs in a sleep consult should always be the sleep schedule. And so really getting a sense of what time are you going to bed? What time are, how long is it taking you to fall asleep? And what time are you waking up? Both on a scheduled day, as well as a non-scheduled day. I used to call it a school day and a weekend, but COVID kind of blasted what a school day is out the window. Now, as kids are returning to a more traditional schedule, of course, we can return to that vocabulary as well. But really getting a sense of what that schedule is, because to use a teenager as an example, and, and I should mention what I'm talking about first here is normally developing children. All I'm going to give you a slightly different answer for some of our differently abled children. But for a normally developing child, let's use a teenager as an example, their school night, they might cognitively know that I need to get more hours of sleep. So on a school night, they try to go to bed at 9 p.m. They don't fall asleep till midnight, and then they wake up at 6 a.m. But then on the weekend, it doesn't occur to them that what they're doing is essentially playing video games. Then they go to bed at around 1 a.m., fall asleep right away, and wake up at 10 a.m. Is this a kid that needs some sort of um, sedating medication? No. In fact, there's no sedating medication that I can give them that's going to put them to sleep before their internal circadian rhythm is ready. And so that's where I will get kids who will come to me sometimes and they'll say, you know, we've tried most have tried melatonin, but some doctors will put them on trazodone or clonidine or what have you. And they'll say that none of it works. None of the meds have worked. And when I get to that sleep schedule, it's no longer surprising to me that it doesn't work because they are essentially trying to go to bed on a school night several hours before their um, circadian rhythm is ready for that. And so the treatment there becomes shifting your circadian rhythm, not trying to sedate you at the bedtime that you're trying to force upon your body. And that's how we get success for those kids. So in those kids, do I need a medication? No. Um, 
we do use melatonin at a very low dose, 0.5 milligrams to one milligrams at dinner time. So a few hours before their desired bedtime, because that has been shown to help start advancing the circadian rhythm. And the other thing we do is light therapy um, in the morning when they wake up. Now, somebody who's waking up at typically nine or 10 a.m., if I get the sense that that's their internal clock, I try to make sure to tell them not to try to stand by the light when they wake up for school at 5 a.m. Because ironically, that might actually uh, be worse for them if I try to shift it too fast because there is poor body temperature minimum. I'm geeking out here. Sorry. Um, nope, totally fine. All right. <laughs> I'm a geek out with y'all on the circadian rhythm. Um, essentially, the uh, core body temperature reaches a minimum. And then a few hours later, we wake up. If you are exposed to bright light before that core body temperature minimum, then you will actually further delay your sleep onset and sleep wake time. But if we expose you to the natural light an hour or two after your core body temp minimum, then that is actually a very potent way of advancing your sleep schedule. And so I always want to make sure for the teenagers who are waking up at 5 a.m. on weekdays, but 10 a.m. on weekends, that we actually start the light therapy around 10 a.m. and slowly start shifting back from there, the timing of the light therapy to make sure that I'm not inadvertently delaying their sleep schedule. So what time is the light therapy? I mean, what exactly do you use for light therapy? Like they stand in front of a light bulb or what do you, what do you have them do? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. So here in Michigan, I'm, as you, as you know, I moved here from California two and a half years ago. Um, I wasn't aware that there are places where you don't see the sun till, you know, like noon and, or if at all, some days, some weeks. And every day for like the past week, two weeks. (laughs) Yes. Like, where is it? Does it still exist? (laughs) Uh, so in Michigan, I have to recommend a light box. And so light boxes are not typically covered by insurance, but they're available like on Amazon or, you know, some sort of online shop. And we tend to recommend about 10,000 looks and you essentially stare at it, not stare, sorry. You expose yourself to it for about 20 to 30 minutes in the morning. And so if this is for families where maybe there really is no other option because they otherwise have to go, go, go to other indoor facilities for some families, particularly during COVID and particularly when the weather is nicer, I will recommend to them, you wake up, you put some clothes on and you go outside for a beautiful walk. And that way you're getting your blood moving. You're exposing yourself to natural light, which is the most potent medication I can give you for advancing your sleep schedule. Wow. So, so walk me through, I am a teenager and I am going to bed at midnight because that's when I get tired. So Mm -hmm. the parent trying to tell the kid to go to bed at nine, that's like not going to make any sense. And they're going to just wake up. I mean, I often tell those kids like, get up and sit in a chair, do something quiet, you know, not with your phone. And when you're sleepy, then try again. But if your natural sleep is going to be at midnight, it, you know, trying to push it to nine is not going to happen. So I go to bed at midnight and it is a school day. So I have to wake up at six. Yep. When do I do the light therapy? So at that point, of course, you maybe wait till you're at school and then maybe do it at your 8 a.m. class. Okay. Because it would still be dark, especially. So that's where me finding out, let's say that you're waking up at 10 a.m. 
If you're waking up at 10 a.m., most likely your core body temperature is around seven, uh, core body temp minimum is around 7 a.m. Because it's usually about two or three hours before you wake up. And so if you're waking up typically at 10 a.m., like that's your normal rested wake up time, that tells me I should ask you not to do your light therapy till after 7 or 8 a.m. So if I tell you do 8 a.m., and so this is where, you know, sometimes we have to write school notes. But as so long as you're trying to move it back. Right. By doing it at 8 a.m., then that's trying to move their sleep back. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. We're trying to advance their sleep schedule. So advance meaning instead of going to bed at midnight and waking up at 10 a.m., I'll advance you to 10 p.m. sleep time and 8 a.m. wake time and or keep marching back, maybe 9 p.m. sleep time and 7 a.m. wake up time, etc. I feel like I need a whiteboard with that. Is there, <laughs> is there a, an article or um, something that would be like, I could read about that, you know, the actual, I'm like a real visual, like I just want some arrows and maybe some bullet points. Is there something like that? So there's my favorite slide that I am happy to share with you once I dig it up. It won't take me long to dig it up. It's just on my work computer. not. Yep. On well, uh, I can post a link. Okay. Or post it on the yeah. show note. Great. Yep. So yeah, because that essentially shows you, because uh, sleep is ultimately controlled by two processes. One is called process C, that's our circadian rhythm. And one is process S and process S is essentially our sleep rhythm, if you will, where as soon as we wake up, adenosine starts building in our body and that's essentially building sleep pressure. So over the course of the day that you're awake, adenosine is building up and your circadian rhythm, and I'll show you it on the graph, um, is essentially giving you alerting signal to help you stay awake. If you're, what we want is your process S and your process C to be aligned so that at the end of the night, when you, your adenosine level is super high, your circadian rhythm is also now low. Your alerting agents are no longer on. They've been turned off. Your melatonin is rising. And so the delta between the amount of adenosine you have and where your circadian rhythm is means your sleep pressure is at its max and you fall asleep at the time that you want. I have the sleep pressure vision of like somebody sitting on my eyelids. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> very so interesting. Very interesting. Folks who are successful at falling asleep, they have those rhythms aligned. So what about phones and social media and circadian rhythm and sleep yeah. pressure? What what happens? <laughs> Should so, we worry? Well, yes, because some folks will come at me with, well, we wear blue light glasses or whatever those things are to reduce the blue light. And the best way I can explain it for folks is when we have our phones and tablets, particularly phones and tablets versus TV, although TV is not healthy either, but phones and tablets are so close to our face when we're using them that the light that's being emitted, regardless of what you think the phone companies have done to mitigate that blue light, is a very potent signal that's going right to our brain saying, alert, alert, stay awake. It is almost the same as if I were to tell you at 10 p.m. to take a medication for ADHD. That's how alerting the technology can be to our brain. That so, potent. Yes. Wow. And so uh, I really try to stress to folks who tell me, no, it's not that. I try to through motivational interviewing, encourage them to at least give it a shot. If we can 
give it a couple of weeks where you're not using it. Let's just try something different. And I do stress to some folks who are particularly anti that recommendation, um, listen, do you, you probably have some friends, family who can be on their phone at bedtime and then turn it off and they go to sleep. Aren't you so jealous of them? You know what I'm jealous of? Those friends in med school who didn't take any notes, didn't take any uh, PowerPoints. They would just hear the lecture once and then ace every test. I am so jealous of them, but I'm not them. I can't do that. Similarly, if your brain is more sensitive to that signal, you can't be like that friend who can be on their phone at bedtime and then still fall asleep. And so really trying to encourage folks who are coming to see me for this issue that the phone is the antithesis of the treatment that we're trying to implement for them. And I will not prescribe a medication to counteract that until we get that part fixed. So speaking of a medication that you wouldn't prescribe, but they do, what about marijuana? Because I hear a lot of teens say, I use marijuana before I go to sleep. Yeah. So I think marijuana is being used a lot more than we want to potentially admit to ourselves as a medical community. I can't speak to the safety of it. Uh, What I can speak to is that in the still developing brain, there is much more deleterious effects of use of marijuana than in the more established brain, if you will. So in teenagers, I really cannot recommend the use of that. But when I have, I I always encourage them to share with me if they're using it, because I want them to know it's a safe place. Because what that signals to me, even if they don't endorse the word anxiety or depression, that tells me that there may be a component of that in there that we need to work on as well. And so to me, that's not a medication that I can, that, that I can recommend for teenagers because their brain is still developing so actively and the, the effects on those brain synapses that marijuana can have is I think more potent and dangerous than, than we are realizing. And that's not coming from someone who's totally anti-marijuana. If there are consenting adults whose brains are not really going to change much anymore, who want to try it as part of a treatment plan, There's no medication that by itself is going to be uh, totally functional and helping you fall asleep. You have to do the hard work of identifying cognitive beliefs that are not helping you fall asleep, identifying your behaviors that are preventing you from falling asleep. I think the use of any medication, including marijuana, without doing the adjoining difficult work that is required is going to lead someone to not be successful in their sleep goals. And so ultimately, I really encourage folks that we have to do the hard work around what's preventing you from sleeping. And then if we need to, we can consider as an adjunct medication for a time-limited trial to help you feel more successful in the beginning. But then at some point, we really need to bring that medication down. I like that about the hard work. And I I try and sometimes, and I certainly would not prescribe marijuana or suggest that either by any means, but I know a lot of kids are doing that and sometimes their parents too. Um, And, you know, so I, I, I like you would ask, you know, what do you like about it? You know, and when they say, well, it makes me, it relaxes me or it gets my mind off of things. Well, that's another conversation. But also sometimes I'll say, would you be willing to do an experiment? You know, could we try this for a little bit? And, you know, or what could you do? Um, You know, 
could you try every other night? You know, somehow not bargaining, but you know, motivational interviewing, right? At its finest. Um, so sometimes getting some buy-in, um, and I've actually kind of written prescriptions, you know, about your sleep and how we're going to do this, and some, you know, like stepwise. Let's let's write it down and then see them. I mean, I haven't come back in a week or two weeks or. Now I can have them use the portal. Why don't you send me a message and give me an update? And motivated kids will do that. Absolutely. And I think uh, it's another one of those examples where certainly I'll document recommended do not use marijuana. But if all I did in the office visit is say, no, you can't do that. You need to stop that right now. I I might feel better that I told them them what to do. They're not going to listen to me. And so if that's already present, like I would for any other child, we are so fortunate in this community of West Michigan that we have access to some really amazing uh, sleep psychologists. And so anytime there's someone who's having anxiety, um, sadness, worries, things that just are on their mind that are making it hard to fall asleep, I always talk to them about the fact that the best way we can get you through this to be able to return to being able to fall asleep successfully without the need for any adjuncts is through cognitive behavioral therapy of insomnia. And since we have two practitioners in in our hospital who implement this very successfully and very expertly, uh, if a family really is open to it, which they should be, because that's really the, that if you will, is the magic wand. Doing that hard work and that treatment is the way you're gonna get back to being able to fall asleep, potentially without needing medication in the future. What about apps like, um, you know, Calm is one, Insight Timer for meditation, CBTI, I think is another app. You know, of course, that's using your phone, but what do you think about apps for sleep or, you know, things like that? So they have done research, um, not on a specific app, so I can't recommend a specific brand. However, they have done the research around is online CBTI as successful as an in-person CBTI. And they have shown that a well-developed online CBTI program uh, can be just as successful as uh, in-person. These studies were done in adults, but there isn't necessarily a reason to think it wouldn't work for teenagers as well, for example. Um, And so really being able to use what's available to you. Now, with, with us, with COVID, essentially pushing telemed into our abilities, if you will, much faster than maybe we would have gotten to without COVID. I think one of the barriers was, you know, for our families that live in Northern Michigan, being able to come down here for an in-person session, you know, driving two to four hours wasn't something that they were always willing to do. But now with telemed, we can potentially offer that from the comfort of their home, comfort and safety of their home. Uh, And for families, it does require motivation. So I always tell families when we're talking about stuff like this, the good news is this is curable. It's absolutely curable. And the more exciting news is you don't even need me to be able to do it. You have to implement all these strategies. So my job is to give you step-by-step the recipe for how we're going to fix this. And if you're ready to start doing it, you can start tonight and this can be fixed within weeks. It's not going to, and that's the other thing I always want to stress is Rome wasn't built in a night. Your sleep problems didn't occur with just one bad night. They have developed over the course of weeks and months, sometimes years, the expectation that we're going to fix it in 
one or two days is unreasonable. And so really the process of turning the ship around takes time. It takes consistency, but it is absolutely doable. I love that. I mean, I think that's a great take home right there to say to family, this is curable and it is absolutely exciting and you can do it without me. And in a f- you can see results in a few weeks. Sounds like a commercial. It does. So, and, and that sounds like something a primary care person could do before they get to you, right? Well, you know, I would, uh, here's the thing. I think as healthcare has changed for some of our primary care colleagues, it is no longer reasonable for us to expect them to be able to have half an hour or 45 minutes to really sit down with the family and go through some of these steps. And so, yes, is, is there any magic to what I do? There really isn't. But the magic is that I have the privilege of a more time, which some of our primary care colleagues don't. And so certainly a primary care colleague who has the time absolutely has the ability. But if you don't have the time, I'm certainly not going to hold, hold that against our primary care colleagues. Well, and I think what we do have the time for is the prevention piece and the advice piece on the front end. And then for those of us who are lucky enough to have social workers in the office um, or um, psychologists, some of that history piece could be something they could help with. So maybe there are some other steps, but knowing that we have people like you that we could refer to, because I think we think that the reason to refer somebody to sleep is for a sleep study. And, and it, you know, I think the conversation probably for another day is what about sleep disorders and kids with autism and developmental disabilities and traumatized kids because those kids can't sleep because it's not safe, right? They have to, you know, the, the tiger's in the room. They have to be awake. Um, that, that's a whole nother topic, but sleep is all, not all about obstructive sleep apnea. I mean, that's important, but it's not the first thing, right? Oh, I love hearing that. Exactly. Just like I always tell residents, pediatric pulmonary is more than just cystic fibrosis and pediatric sleep is more than just obstructive sleep apnea. And so I do want to apologize. I spoke so much that we ran out of time to talk about our differently able children um, because strategies are a little different for them. But uh, uh, you're absolutely right that For pediatric sleep, we have to think outside of just sleep apnea. And for the kids that we've spoken about this this morning, the sleep study is almost never the first thing that we do. And in some kids, we don't end up having to do it at all because it wasn't sleep apnea. And so really the only reason for a sleep study is to rule out sleep apnea, not to quote unquote rule in insomnia. So that's going to be podcast number two, sleep apnea. <laughs> because, and I do think that this issue of sleep is so important to kids' behaviors and moods that, I mean, I totally see that this topic fits perfectly within what I feel like the podcast is about, emotional and you know, emotional well-being. So we will revisit that for sure. So, well, listen, my final question to all my guests is if you could go back and tell your resident self a word of advice, what would it be? Take a deep breath. Forgive yourselves for the mistakes that you've made. Know that you're growing. And probably most importantly is know that you're belong, that you belong. I think the imposter syndrome that some of us feel uh, when we get to med school. And then when we get to be the physician, it it is really powerful and it can be very debilitating for some of us. This idea that 
it's a fluke that I am where I am. Um, I think certainly I didn't get here by myself. There was a lot of people along the way that encouraged me and kept me going, but it's okay to know that you belong, that you are not here uh, by accident. I think you're a therapist at heart. (laughs) Well, you know, I've been exposed to lots of amazing therapists as well um, at work. And so hearing them and hearing what they tell families and realizing that I can see myself in some of our families that seek that therapist help. And probably all of us can see ourselves in some of that. Having that empathetic heart, I think, helps me sometimes to not be a jerk. (laughs) No. And I would feel like if I came to see you with my child, that's not sleeping. I think one is you're super fun. You would make me laugh. And three, I wouldn't feel bad about myself. So I think you have a gift at that. And thank you so much for sharing all this with me. I really appreciate it. And this is like super practical stuff. And like I said, we'll, we'll do this again. I would love to. This was fun. Thank you again for the privilege of being able to chat with you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, have a great day. Oh my goodness. I love Dr. Artinian so much. And I love his journey to save the world and to become a pediatrician because it was easier than being an eighth grade teacher. One of the biggest things that resonated with me is the idea that most sleep problems are totally curable and that the exciting news is that It is easily treatable and works within weeks. Well, maybe the easily part is saying more than it really is because it means saying no to your kids, changing some really tough behaviors like kids staying on their phones. So it is some work, but it is a doable proposition if and when families, parents, patients are ready to make some changes. So The important things are sleep environment, cognitive beliefs about sleep, sleep schedule on non-scheduled days versus scheduled days, and then circadian rhythm shifts. And that really um, is important, particularly with teenagers. Taking back control, so the parent being able to say no to the fourth curtain call for another glass of water is okay, and it really helps kids not only with sleep, but with so many other behaviors. Light therapy was really interesting, and I would recommend you go back and listen to his suggestions or take a look at some of the show notes for a summary of how a light box might be helpful. Parent sleep. If a parent isn't sleeping well, everybody's going to be crabby. And particularly for our postpartum moms, sleep is crucial to their emotional well-being and then that of the babies. So we need to ask about our parents and how they're sleeping too. And finally, his recommendations to his younger self, I think really pertain to all of us. And that's to take a deep breath, forgive yourself, and remind yourself that you're not an imposter and that you really are an expert and own that. It's really okay. So again, thanks so much to Dr. Artinian. I hope you feel comfortable comforted by his words and find some take-home points that were really doable things to share with your patients and families. You all take care of yourselves, get enough sleep, and I will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. 
If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.